To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash give tech. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash give tech. Hey, it's Lily Jamali. Marketplace Tech has a new limited series out on YouTube called Decoding Democracy. With rapid advancements in new technology like AI, disinformation efforts are more convincing and more misleading than ever. So we'll be discussing how to spot things like deep fakes, how to protect yourself from disinformation, and how to talk to your friends and family about it. As always, this fact-based journalism and vital information will be free and accessible to all. As a public service newsroom, donations for from you help us take on ambitious reporting projects like this one. Every single gift makes a difference. Go to marketplace.org slash give tech. Old school video games are in danger of mass extinction. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Megan McCarty Carino. For the most part, it's not too hard to get access to movies from the last decade or even the last century. But if you want to experience a video game from before, say, the ancient history of 2010, good luck. A report from the Video Game History Foundation and the Software Preservation Network finds that 87% of those older games are what they call critically endangered, meaning they're not commercially available to the public unless someone's got dozens of different old systems or wants to travel to an archive in person and play it there. Which means the roots of this hugely influential artistic and cultural medium are in danger of being lost, says Phil Salvador. He's the library director for the Video Game History Foundation. Video games for a long time had been treated as being sort of toys or being treated disposably. Uh, you see this happen with other mediums as well, like it happened with you know early film, how you know uh, films would just kind of get thrown out once they were used. The video game industry never really had this notion of, you know, we're going to resell these games 20 years later. So there's a combination of long-term rights issues that just kind of weren't hammered out back then. Licensing issues if you're making, like, you know, let's say a game based on a Marvel comic. You know, that's kind of a thing you have to hammer out long-term. But also a lot of technical issues where, you know, you can't just automatically put an older game on a new platform. It's kind of a, a complicated, expensive process that only just now is starting to get a little more manageable. And uh, we're kind of feeling the effects of that now in terms of their availability. In your report, you sort of translate this into another context that I think really brings it home. You know, what would be a similar scenario if we're talking about films or movies? What would this look like? Well, our founder, Frank Cifaldi at the Video Game History Foundation, raised a really good comparison point where he looked at video games from the 80s versus movies from the 80s. And it's kind of bizarre that you can get most of the top selling, you know, top grossing movies from the 80s through Amazon or DVD copy or what have you. Uh, but when it comes to video games, most of those still tend to be inaccessible. Our point of comparison in the study was that uh, the availability rate for these classic video games kind of falls somewhere around 
pre-World War II audio recordings and and the survival rate of American silent films. Obviously, for games, you know, they're not completely gone. You can still track down one of these, you know, used copies. But it's a case where it's like we shouldn't be talking about these numbers in the same context. You know, mediums that are over a century old versus things that came out 30 years ago. Downloading games digitally has sort of become the norm in the industry in recent years. I mean, how has this trend contributed to to this issue that you're talking about? Well, on the one hand, it's been positive in the sense that it's easier, I should say, to uh, to re-release games than it ever has been before. You don't have to remanufacture cartridges or CDs. But the downside is that, you know, digital distribution is inherently volatile. At some point, these stores will shut down. At some point, this isn't going to be available. And we're already seeing signs for some older generations of game consoles like the Xbox 360 that the stores are going to shut down sometime in the near future. And that's going to represent, uh, we've been saying, a mass extinction event for a lot of these games. There was a recent example where uh, Nintendo shut down uh, their old eShops for the Nintendo 3DS and Wii U consoles. And it was estimated that about 1,000 games that were unique to those platforms were taken out of circulation. So you can't even go to eBay and get the used copies of those anymore. What is the role of, of public policy like copyright law here? Well, copyright law, we like to say, it was not designed with video games in mind. There was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act passed over 20 years ago that made an attempt at modernizing copyright law to deal with things like digital copies, uh, with digital rights management, which, you know, preventing you know, tampering with or copying games, that kind of technology. But I don't think they were designed with something like game preservation in mind. So we end up in scenarios where the kind of preservation activities that libraries and archives can do around other mediums, it's harder to do that for video games. I think we live in a world where, you know, you could scan pages of a book and make them available to researchers. Doing that for games, there's just various copyright obstacles we still need to work around to do that sort of thing. And what has the role of the actual video game industry been in this? Well, very broadly speaking, the video game industry has supported the idea of game preservation. But when it comes to copyright reform, uh, consistently we've received pushback from the video game industry and its lobbying groups for even modest changes to copyright law to make it easier for libraries to do their jobs. These groups have raised concerns that I think aren't unreasonable, that if libraries were able to expand access to their collection, they've kind of had this specter of, you know, online digital arcades they've been referring to, that, you know, we would be effectively competing with the video game industry. The reason we did this study was to show that we're not talking about the same thing here. The industry is concerned with this 13% of games that are still in print that they've decided are commercially viable still. I'm not worried about a world where, you know, Mario or Sonic or Final Fantasy aren't available anymore. What we're worried about is that other 87% of games that the industry can't or won't get to. You know, if the only option to get those is spending hundreds of dollars or piracy, we have to look at, okay, well, what other options could be on the table? What can we do to make it easier for libraries and archives to do their job sharing this with the people who need it? So what kinds of solutions does your organization recommend to address this? The one that's been on the table recently is the idea of remote digital access. There's technology called emulation that lets us uh, effectively mimic how old game systems work on modern platforms. There's ways we can provide that access in a secure, responsible manner, but it's been difficult to get the exemption we need uh, in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to make that happen because the game industry raised these concerns about uh, you know, whether this is going to impact their bottom line. 
so again, that's why we dug into these statistics. It's like rather than arguing anecdotes about, you know, these games aren't available, these ones aren't, we we have hard data now to say like this, these are the games we are actually concerned about. We're not, you know, this isn't going to impact what the game industry is doing. And if anything, our efforts are complementing each other. What's really at stake here? What do we lose if we lose these older games? Uh, you know, I think this is kind of timely of what we're seeing happening in the digital media landscape right now, where titles are being removed from services. You see things like Turner Classic Movies, you know, uh, kind of uh, facing this existential threat as Warner Brothers is cutting costs. There's a concern about the same thing happening to video games. We're worried about a world where, you know, the historical record for games is only what's immediately commercially accessible. Uh, video games, like any other medium, like music or movies or books, it's a, you know, it's a medium of creative expression. And to understand the history of it, we want to have access to, you know, the, the broad spectrum of what video games means. One of the really concerning things we found in our study is for the oldest video games, and we're talking games uh, pre-1985, we sort of compared that to being like the silent film era of video games, because that was when we were, you know, establishing the language of what video games are. We were kind of working out what this medium is. Less than 3% of those games are still commercially available. And there's a good reason that's the case. I mean, a lot of these games are kind of archaic. They're not, you know, the most exciting things to resell, but it's like, that's kind of the roots of this industry. And if we want to understand how game design evolved and where this medium came from, we need access to that stuff, even if it's not commercially viable. Right. Like in the film context, there are plenty of films that sort of serve as cultural artifacts that probably aren't going to go into the Criterion collection, but are kind of cool to have access to. Exactly. But they've had a, f a huge influence on filmmakers and kind of developing their sensibilities. Uh, we think about games that, yeah, might not necessarily have been the biggest titles, but still have something interesting you can learn from them or some unusual perspective because there's, again, the sorts of rights issues or technical issues or just the industry deciding it's not something they can really make money off of. That shouldn't be the deciding factor for whether they're still available for people who want to study them. Phil, can you give me some examples of the type of games we might be losing? For one specific example, there's a very fascinating game which uh, I don't think was actually released in the United States, but is a great example of the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Uh, it was a game from the 1980s uh, for older computers like the Amiga computer. It was a game called Freedom Rebels in the Darkness which depicted uh, a slave revolt in the French Caribbean in the 1800s. It is an incendiary game. Uh, it is still shocking today that this game exists, and especially that it was made during this earlier period of the game industry. There was a case, uh, even before I worked for the Video Game History Foundation, where I was talking with a scholar who was studying depictions of slave revolt in media, and they wanted to play this game. And our solution was all right, well, here's how to pirate this video game because you can't get copies of it anymore. And here's how to set up this cumbersome software to you know, mimic how to run an Amiga on a modern computer. And there's no real troubleshooting for this. We have the technology to make this easier for folks to access if they're trying to research it. But because of some of the burdensome restrictions that still exist in copyright, libraries and archives are having trouble doing their job getting these sorts of games more widely accessible. Phil Salvador at the Video Game History Foundation. Daniel Shin produced this episode. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.